Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. And today we are speaking about the subject of Middle Platonism with a man who knows a thing or two about Middle Platonism, Professor John Dillon. Uh, John, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. Oh, it's a great pleasure to do so. Yeah, thanks. So you published a book in 1977 called The Middle Platonists, which did a lot to put Middle Platonism solidly on the scholarly map of history and philosophy. And so I wonder if you could tell us what is Middle Platonism, <laughs> first of all. Yes. Well, uh, that's a nice point. Uh, indeed, uh, a number of reviewers of the, of, the, of the book raised the reasonable question, can there be such a thing as Middle Platonism? And uh, my reply to that in, in, in a later edition, at an appendix, was, well, people don't think they're middle anything. It's not a thing you want to be. Nobody wants to be a, a middle Marxist or, or a middle Thomist or whatever. It just happens that uh, neo-whatevers come after you. Uh, they thought they were Platonists. And what they were professing was the sum total of Platonism as a system which had been formalized, I believe, in uh, the old academy by, not by Plato himself, because he didn't wish to have a, a sort of closed system. He wished to inquire into the matters of interest to him. But his immediate successors felt the need to define what we believe. And from that period, from, uh, say, the last decade of the 4th century BC, particularly Xenocrates, who was the second head of the academy after Plato, I think made a great effort to define what we believe. Um, he seems to have been the first to divide the subject matter of philosophy into three broad sections, logic, ethics, and physics, or physics, ethics, and logic. You can have them in any order and uh, developed a series of platonic doctrines under each heading. And the, the, this period of, of sort of after the aftermath, the immediate aftermath of Plato, and the period of formalization and dogmatism continued for about what, 80, 80 years or so after Plato's death in 347. But after the death of Xenocrates' so successor, Polymon, the Platonic tradition, or the, let's say, Socratic tradition, took a very interesting turn and turned to skepticism, going back to its Socratic roots, as, as they saw it. Uh, I think in a reaction to Stoicism, which, is, which had, uh, had arisen at that time and was uh, being strongly dogmatic. And uh, the Platonists didn't want to be a, a weaker version of Stoicism. So they decided to take them on. And so you've got a period of a couple of hundred years of very interesting skeptical inquiry, which took its inspiration from the negative aspect of Socrates' uh, work as portrayed in the early dialogues and in the Theodetus, let's say. And that came to an end, it sort of fizzled out at the end of the second century BC with a great man called Carneades and his pupils. And in the early 
decades of the first century BC, an interesting man arose out of that system, but with a, a dogmatic turn of mind, a man called Antiochus of Ascalon. And he, he was a, a sort of, well, Cicero studied with him in Athens when he was um, studying things. Antiochus had been a pupil of a man called Philo, uh, Philo of Larissa, and had quarrel, well, uh, bro- broken with him on, on a very important issue at the time of, in epistemology, whether one could attain certainty in respect of some sense perceptions, basically, whether there was such a thing as being quite certain that you had seen something or something was such and such, which the, the new academy, so-called, had been uh, uh, unwilling to accept because that was a stoic view. And uh, Antiochus could really see no, no further uh, reason for maintaining that. So he, again, as a propaganda move, proposed to return to the dogmatism of the old academy and re-establish Platonism as a positive doctrine. Again, with these three divisions of logic, physics, and ethics. Ethics, physics. Um, he has often been characterized and criticized, criticized indeed by Cicero, his friend, as being too close to Stoicism and being, you know, crypto-Stoic and so forth. And it's not very clear that, say, he believed in even immaterial reality as opposed to pneuma and, uh, you know, Stoic pure fire and so on. Uh, But that makes him all the more interesting. He criticized the Stoics himself for being too dogmatic and too absolute in ethics and so forth. Right. He, he, he wanted to restore old academic and uh, platonic moderation in, in the matter of, of ethics and, and uh, the virtues, the moderation of the passions as opposed to the extirpation of the passions, which the, the Stoics, he felt dishonestly, maintained. Uh, so he struck a blow there, uh, very importantly, turning Platonism back to an author. He wasn't trying to invent anything. He didn't we wish to, to, to add anything, he may or may not have done so. But what he said was he was re- returning to the pure doctrines of the old academy. And he, uh, in my book, I sort of start with him, but I don't want to claim him as the founder of Middle Platonism because he he wouldn't have wished to do that and nobody else claimed him as the founder of anything. Um, in fact, they deviated from him. It's interesting, he was not regarded uh, as a great uh, father or founder of anything. Um, So he died in the middle of the century, and uh, really the scene moves to Alexandria after that from Rome and from Athens. He founded a little school which he called the Academy, and his brother took on from him and another fellow from him, but we don't hear any more about them from the end of the century. And so we're launched into a slightly different mode of Platonism from the early, uh, well, let's say the last decades of the of the first century BC, with a chap called Eudorus of Alexandria, um, who we don't, we wish we knew more about. We don't know much about. And he was he was distinctly different in approach to to Antiochus, and there's no evidence that he really had any connection with him. He wished to reclaim 
if anything, the Pythagorean, the old Pythagorean tradition in, in, into Platonism, which um, Antiochus showed no particular interest in. And he definitely reinstates a transcendent world um, uh, with, with a quite a, a complex structure of a, of a, of a one, uh, first principle, presiding over a pair of monad and dyad. Mm. It's quite interesting. I think he may have got that from uh, Plato's Philebus, but um, it's also is a development of the Pythagorean doctrine of monad and dyad, which itself had two variations, one with the monad as superior and the dyad as produced from it, and the other as two primordial, a more dualist um, scenario of monad and dyad. He managed to combine them. And he had, a, I think, a, a notable influence on a very interesting fellow who is the first substantial figure in what I call Middle Platonism, would not wish to be a Platonist at all. He was, he was a pious Jew, Philo, Philo of Alexandria. He would regard himself as a mosaic, if anything. He, he studied uh, the philosophy of Moses. But that was a, a delightful piece of one-upmanship. He persuaded himself because I think he got a very good Hellenic education from his father, or arranged by his father. I'd like to think that Eudorus might have been his house philosopher, but that would be speculative. But it's plain that, 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 that Philo, although maintaining uh, Jewish orthodoxy, uh, was Hellenic to the core in his education. He had, had mastered all the, the, the preliminary sciences of, 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 uh, of rhetoric and dialectic and music and so on, and philosophy. And he decided that these could be reclaimed for Judaism on the grounds that Plato had studied, learnt all his stuff from Pythagoras, and Pythagoras in turn, in his wanderings in the Eastern Mediterranean, had learned all his best stuff from followers of Moses on Mount Carmel. And I, I think that, that is a delightful um, fantasy. And it leads to an extraordinary body of work in which he allegorizes in the best, really stoic manner, the books of Moses, the, uh, the Pentateuch, largely, producing from them a, a variety of, of Platonism. So in fact, Philo, while not being strictly a middle Platonist, is very good evidence for what was going on. The movement then con con continues and, and, and flourishes. Uh, we have a number of obscure figures uh, who are mainly names, but the next substantial figure really is a very interesting man, Plutarch of Chironia in, in, in Boeotia in Greece, but who spent most of his time in Athens. In the second half of the first century AD or CE, um, a, stretching into the first decades of the second century. And Plutarch tells us quite a lot about his, himself and his teacher. His main teacher was a man called Ammonius, who came from Alexandria. 
not to be confused with the teacher of Plotinus, Ammonius Saka. And that's indeed in, another very interesting man. hundred years later. Indeed. So we don't know who this, this uh, Ammonius was, although Ammonius uh, had a son called Thrasyllus, and there's a Thrasyllus, who's a very interesting man, who is a court philosopher. He advised Tiberius on astrology and things like that. But he, he was, he, it is actually Thrasyllus who gives us the structure of Plato's works, the edition of Plato's works we have today. And he had various interesting views on things. Um, so there may be a connection there. Uh, we don't know what his background was. But with Plutarch, we, we, have, we, we can um, certainly reconstruct a series of doctrines on all subjects. Now, to return to this question of what did they believe, if we go in order, let us start with logic, which was regarded as a kind of uh, preliminary to philosophy. The Platonists, perhaps even in the old academy, but certainly when it all comes right round again in the first century, had adopted largely Aristotelian logic, the syllogism and 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 and, and, and so so forth. Um, uh, the categories. Maybe I should just say here um, mm-hmm. because. In, in the podcast, we've, logic is the last thing we've covered. Oh, is he? We, we, we leave that to other people. And we've, mm-hmm. we've covered a lot more mythology. And, you know, when we yes. come to Aristotle, we've covered pseudo-Aristotle yes. much more than Aristotle himself. Yes, we won't spend but, much um, time on logic. Logic <laughs> is something that Plato uses a lot of, if by mm-hmm. logic we mean simply rational argument. But mm. Aristotle is the first person in history, as far as we know, to try to reduce rational argument and the validity of statements to a, to a systematic science. So he's the first person to write about logic as what are the rules and regulations of logic, let's discuss this now. So it makes perfect sense that anyone coming after, if they're looking for a system of logic, they're going to go for, well, if not the Stoics, then Aristotle. Yes, quite so. He, he formalized the whole the process. What are we doing when we, when we have a valid argument? And so forth. And of course, uh, the patriotic Platonist view, as we see it in the later work, um, the Handbook of Platonism by uh, one Alkinous, uh, tries to argue that, that actually the divine Plato uh, knew all about Aristotelian logic, and if you look hard enough at the dialogues, you can see all the categories and syllogisms and everything in them. And that's a, <laughs> a great feat of ingenuity and exegesis. But basically, that, that's uh, what they adopted in the way of logic. Um, if we move to ethics, one of the questions that arose in this period, uh, not earlier, was, uh, well, the Stoics started that, I suppose, was what is the aim of human existence? What is the telos, so-called? And the, the, the Stoic formula, which Antiochus adopted generally, is that one must conform to the uh, precepts of, of nature, to live in conformity with, with nature. Physi, with, with physis. Some discussion of that was in connection with Stoicism is whether it's with our own nature or with nature with a capital N. But you live a natural life. But, but that was the, the, the definition that Antiochus was prepared to adopt and he had a number of Platonist arguments to, to back it up that um, uh, every living creature loves itself and wishes to preserve itself in the best possible state, was a basic principle. And we, obviously, that applies to all animals uh, who try to 
preserve themselves. And we as rational beings rise above the basic level of you know, seeking to maximize pleasure and that sort of thing uh, by imposing reason upon the, the passions and moderating the passions, not wiping them out, and developing a rational course of, of action, which we see as the most, also the most profitable, which is uh, exercise of the virtues. And uh, pursuing uh, intellectual study, theoria. So he developed that concept. The aim of life, the telos, was changed in formula uh, already by Eudorus in, in Alexandria, who declared, uh, taking a line from Plato's Theotetus, 176a, that our purpose is to make ourselves like unto God, homoiosis theo, insofar as is possible, catatodunaton. Uh, so th- this becomes a more exalted concept and a more dualistic concept in the sense that you, uh, our purpose is to think our way out of material existence. Um, so you, one could discuss in what respect one can make oneself like to God, but obviously maximizing one's rationality and again, not uh, stamping out the passions in the Stoic m- manner, but but uh, moderating them. So, really, the the, the, the nature of the, the four virtues was preserved and, and, and taken over from Platonism, and following on the Stoics, these virtues and sub-virtues were defined uh, in, in some detail. But basically, you practiced justice and moderation and so forth, as was advocated by Socrates and 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 Plato. Uh, obviously, they took some interest in in politics, but obviously, in the conditions of the, of the Roman Empire, it it wasn't wise to get too uh, specific about what sort of politics you like. But obviously, uh, the idea of of a philosopher advising a ruler was very popular, and a, and, a, and a number of them did. Obviously, you could develop, uh, Philo develops an interesting concept of democracy, which we wouldn't recognize really, but where everybody has their proper place. He, he believed that there were classes of, of person who, who shouldn't be disturbed, but um, the, the, there was no immoderate oppressing of anybody. Moderation was to be observed. In That's interesting um, mm. from coming from Philo, because of course yes. Philo is part of the Jewish uh, minority, but sizable yes. minority yes. in Hellenistic, late Hellenistic Alexandria, where mm. a kind of harmonious moderation was the key to survival. Because as long yes. as everyone had just got on with their business and been themselves and not tampered too much with the kind of overarching balance. The city had gone yes. fine, but in his yes. very time, there had been this sort of anti-Jewish yeah, pogroms and some sort of uh, yes. mob violence. Always so dangerous. Interesting, because he's coming from a, the end of the Hellenistic sort of political perspective, rather than the Roman hegemonic yes. empire perspective. That's right. Yes, I think he was uh, m- much influenced by by that and his particular situation. Mm. But he, he comes up with these interesting things. Um, and there's always a, been a, in the handbook of Platonism, there's a, a section on, on politics as well, and 
types of state and, and so forth. Mm. Um, and it was felt... Um, I think a lot of people, certainly I think Plutarch felt that um, the Roman Empire, as founded by Augustus, was in some way the... He, he has an interesting treatise on in praise of the Romans, actually, uh, but, but he makes, makes the point that the Romans have sort of brought politics to a culmination, and the, the empire, in its way, under a just and uh, rational emperor, um, with everybody doing their thing, is uh, the best form of, of government. And uh, I think he had a, a feeling that was shared by, by many intellectual Greeks that, well, let the Romans get on with it. They, they, they like running emperor, empires. They're good at municipal drainage and roads and things. And uh, uh, let them do it. And he had good friends in, in the Roman administration and so forth. So if you got a good emperor and a good governor and the, the senate of the, of the local city, in this case Athens, was doing its job and so on, that's the best you could get. So the subject of politics was largely taken care of. Uh, you, don't, you don't get a Platonist, you, you get a, a stoic opposition in Rome to tyrannical Roman emperors, but you don't really get a Platonist opposition to anyone, I must say. Um, now, in physics, including metaphysics, is probably the most significant and important part. And there, the consensus is that there is an intelligible world, and another realm of existence, which is the real one, which is presided over by a unitary intellect, a noose, which is also a one or a monad, which contains within itself the archetypes of all existence, the forms. This had been left unclear in Plato's Timaeus and elsewhere, and this is one of the things that had to be formalized. I think it was already formalized by Xenocrates, that the forms are not outside the intellect. They are the contents of the intellect. And without excessive acknowledgement, uh, Aristotle's concept of a self-thinking intellect was, was adopted as the, the model. Now, that doesn't exclude subordinate deities and demons and, and so forth, um, and lo local deities or, or nymphs or things. Uh, but basically, the world is controlled by an intellect. It was not seen, it was not seen as a problem that as it was by, by Plotinus later, that intellection involves some degree of duality, even if you're thinking about yourself. Right. There's the thinking element and the thought uh, element, and that this was incompatible with the complete unity that is, is proper to um, a first principle. That wasn't seen as a problem. Uh, I think it was seen perhaps by Numenius uh, later. Why, as why don't you um, mm. introduce Numenius? Uh, the, the time has come, perhaps, to do that. Leaving Plutarch, who gives us a delightful series, I mean, he's also a great biographer, and he writes treatises on general things, but, and most of his most serious philosophical works are perished. It's peculiar. Uh, the, the ones we have are very interesting. The, he writes dialogues, or slightly different form to Plato, but in that tradition, and he develops all sorts of interesting concepts, but he is by no means the end of Middle Platonism. Uh, in the latter part of the century, of the second century, you, you get a, a number of interesting figures. The man who followed him and became the first sort of professor of, 
of Platonic philosophy pointed by Marcus Aurelius in 176 AD is a fellow called Atticus, who is quite anti-Aristotelian. He, he, he writes a, an attack on the Aristotelians. Uh, yeah, I think he's provoked by an Aristotelian, actually, who wrote uh, a sort of put-down of Plato just before him. But he's, he is a more stoic uh, lining in that case. There was the problem for Platonists that you had the Aristotelian tradition on the one hand and the stoic tradition on the other, and you could juggle between them and you strike a a position between them or take up uh, a more austere view of ethics or a more uh, laid-back view of ethics. And and this this was the sort of metriopathia, moderation of the passions, as against apathia, impassivity. But there was more going on than than Plutarch and Atticus. Uh, There was also quite a strong neo-Pythagorean tradition sprang up. Uh, starting, going back to the Thrasyllus, he certainly has an interest in that. Ammonius, Plutarch's Ammonius, had an interest in that. But Moderatus of Gades is an interesting man. Gades being Cadiz in Spain, uh, however he got there. He, he was quite a strong Pythagorean. He criticized the Platonists for sort of uh, stealing most of Pythagoras's best ideas and leaving Pythagoreans with the, the dregs and and so on, and he wished to re-establish Pythagoreanism. But you could be a Pythagorean and still a sort of faithful Platonist. He is followed by a man called Nicomachus of Gerasa, who is mainly concerned with the philosophy of mathematics, and writes an interesting book on that. And then a man who based himself, he was obviously Syrian himself, based himself in Apamea in Syria, which is an important center of philosophy in later times, because of Iamblichus, but Numenius, who is a very interesting man, of which we wish we knew more. People have suggested even that he was he was Jewish by descent, but he knew a lot about the Old Testament. He knew a lot, a lot about Indian and Chaldean philosophy and, and so forth, and brings them in in, in 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 ways. But he's also quite dualistic in his approach. Now, dualistic in a moral sense. Plutarch also is, I think, more than Plato. He sees an evil world soul at work in the world, or a disorderly world soul, which sort of pre-exists the ordered cosmos. Numenius um, has, a, has a concept of an evil soul that we have a nibbling at us, so to speak, and it would be even the idea that we might have two souls, and that there is an evil world soul. Um, so he's quite quite dualist, probably by uh, perhaps influence from Persia. But he has quite an elaborate cosmology and metaphysics. Um, he makes wants to make a, a division between a, a primary god and a secondary god. Now so these gods are nooses, right? They're he, noes. They're, they're both noes, and uh, he's distinguishing as you could going back to Plato, obviously between the demiurge of the Timaeus, a demiurgic figure who hands-on creator, and a more remote figure like the good of the Republic, or the one of the Parmenides, if the Parmenides is interpreted in a certain way, um, metaphysically, uh, there's this other entity that is more, more transcendent. And Numenius puts them, well, finds a place for both. His first Noose, his first uh, uh, god, he describes as a, a noose, an intellect at rest. 
Hestos, uh, which is, is a new, in sort of, kind of not, not actively noosing, let us say. Yeah. Whereas the, the secondary god takes his sort of energy from the, the first god, but is a noose in, in motion, in kinesis, and he, or kinumenos, and he uh, takes a more active role in creating the cosmos. And I think that looking from a later perspective, uh, Plotinus uh, would have reasonably said, well, what is a noose doing if it's, if it's static? If it's, uh, it's not being a noose. Um, so why is it a noose if it's that unitary and, and uh, potential rather than active? So he makes the, that uh, strong distinction, and that's more, that's, that's mainly what we know about him. We, I, we, it would seem that he was had a fairly austere view of, of ethics. Uh, we don't know anything about his logic, let's say. Um, th- that's what, what comes across to us from the various um, extracts that we have of his. He, he wrote a treatise on the good, which seems to be in a sort of dialogue, but he, um, he, he develops his ideas in that. He had a, a companion called Cronius, must have been his sort of second in command, who is credited with a few doctrines, but basically is his sidekick. And with Numenius, and I suppose Atticus, there's another intriguing man called Severus, which we know all too little about towards the end of the century. That is the last generation of what we would call middle Platonists. As I said, they, they had no concept of being middle anythings. The only other well, important document that comes out of this period is a thing called the Didascalikos, means the sort of teaching um, handbook of Platonism, which used to be attributed to a philosopher which we know little about called Albinus, who was a pupil of another man we know even less about called Gaius. But unfortunately for that theory, the the, the manuscripts credit this document to a fellow called Alcinous, somebody called Alcinous, and it's been argued in relatively recent times there's, there's really no justification for saying that's just a misprint for Albinus. Um, it wouldn't make much difference in, in any case. But this is a very valuable statement of what, on the whole, um, uh, Platonists believed, if you want to know it, uh, useful translation of it by yours truly, um, uh, with some commentary. Um, that is a pretty good handbook. Uh, to which we should add, actually, the handbook of another very interesting man, but he's not primarily Platonist, he's a lawyer, Apuleius of Madaura. Um, a lawyer and a novelist. A lawyer and a novelist. A lawyerist and an initiate. Absolutely. Let's not sell him short. He's a remarkable man. But he, obviously, in his youth, uh, as many uh, aristocratic Romans did, uh, took a bit of philosophy, which was in, in, in Athens. And as a result of that, he produces a handbook of Platonism of, of his own. And also an interesting treatise on the, the daimonion, the demon of Socrates. So he's, uh, he's useful too. And he agrees largely, but not entirely, 
uh, with the, the contents of the Didascalikos. So we do have two handbooks of Platonism, which you know, are pretty comprehensive fr from this period. But if I have to sum up what Middle Platonism is, it's just Platonism reconstituted in the first century BC, uh, an attempt to reconstruct the, uh, the, 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 the speculations of Plato in dogmatic form under various headings. Because things moved on and the, the, this remarkable genius of Plotinus in the next century moved to new heights, uh, our men are damned, as, as it were, with the, the, the title of middle Platonists. Well, thank you, John. That's a, a beautiful summary. Now, just because that's a heck of a lot of historical information for those who, who aren't specialists. It is, yes. I'm afraid. Let me see if I can recap what you've just mm. said, and you tell me if I'm missing mm. anything essential out. Yeah. After Plato dies, there's a period, a short period of about three heads of the academy, mm. which we know as the old academy. Mm. It's Pusippus, Xenocrates, and Polemon. And they are dogmatic interpreters of Plato. In other words, they're saying, Plato doesn't give you a system, a philosophy with positive yes. rules and regulations in his dialogues, but this is what we've extracted from the dialogues and built a system. Yeah. That gives way to what's called the Skeptical Academy mm -hmm. for several, well, about 100 years, I guess. A little over 100 years. Little over yes, 100 years. Yes. And these guys are, are taking quite the opposite view. They're saying, dogma, you can't be sure of anything. Well, we don't have any grounds for certain knowledge. This, at the end of the Hellenistic period, and um, what from a Roman perspective would be considered the, the late Republican period, is giving way to Antiochus of Ascalon, who is kind of like a gateway figure, in that he's not, a, he's, he's reopening the door toward dogmatic approach to Plato. And from then on, you have the growth of a movement which we call Middle Platonism. So, from a philosophical perspective, which I guess we can maybe use as the typology of what it is to be Middle Platonist, mm. in logic you're basically Aristotelian, mm -hmm. in ethics you follow a kind of moderation middle path, so you're not mm. as absolute as the Hellenistic schools, this is the point, right? No. Because the Epicureans and the Stoics both want to say things like, death is absolutely meaningless to us, there is virtue and vice and that's it, there are no gray areas, and, mm. and these guys are following more of kind of like, don't overdo things, follow virtue, but you don't have to be quite so black and white about everything. They're not as extreme. And again, I think a lot of use was made of Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics yep. and so forth. Exactly. Okay. And then, last but not least, <coughs> physics. And mm -hmm. this is where we see the growth of, or the, rather, the, I guess, the universal acceptance among the people we call Platonists of a hypostasized noose, in other words, an mm. intellect mm. as a kind of cosmic principle, of, a principle of reality, mm. which is also the world of forms. Yeah. And the forms are sort of like thoughts in the mind of God, at least in Philo, in Philo they really become yes. thoughts in the mind of God. Yes. And Bob's your uncle. There's Middle Platonism. I think so. That, uh, that is about it. There's a re residual question as to whether there is a as I say, an active evil or disorderly force in the world or not. And that's a rather delicate matter on which I've dwelt as much. But um, uh, on the whole, they are a quite, in the second century, dualist. And Plotinus was a pretty determinedly monist. 
I mean, the matter is there, but it's non-existence. And he invades against it from time to time, but it's not, it's not a positive force. Mm. And he, he's rather particular about that. And it's also not a given. The, it, it does eventually come, go back to the one. Yeah, well, he is. it's a product of the one stretching a point, yeah. John Dillon, thank you very much for talking with us. And uh, till the next time we meet, stay esoteric. <laughs> thank you all. Yes.